Welcome everybody to the seventh Sunday of Easter and the seventh in a sermon series called Grace. We have been using the language of resurrection grace. We will continue to use that language today. I do want to keep in front of you that we have a photography contest and tomorrow actually is your last day, your last day to send in your pictures to, OKC, to photo at okcfirst.com. We are looking photographers for pictures of resurrection hope, images of hope. We've already got about 30 entries so far and they are fantastic. We will put those to music and show those to you next week on uh, Pentecost Sunday. I want you to see all of that. So please send those pictures in. You've got another 24 hours or so to send those in to us at photo at okcfirst.com. Thank you very much for all of you who have already sent some things in. There is an incredible meme out there, and um, it goes something like this, nature is healing and we are the virus, and it actually started innocently enough. There was actually a couple of pictures of the waterways in Venice, and because of the lockdown, because there was so little traffic on the waterways in Venice, wildlife did start to return to those waterways. You've got swans, and you've actually even got dolphins, all kinds of fish, and then the guy says over here on the right-hand side, nature just hit the reset button on us. So it was all just started innocently enough. Nature is healing. Somehow mankind is perceived as the virus. Well, then there were people who got all upset about this and they started doing some other things that were mocking this, this mindset. For example, this is New York City today where the city's streets are empty and nature has returned in the form of dinosaurs for the first time since 65 million BC. The earth is healing and somehow we, mankind, are the virus. Here's another one here. This is a photo of Lockagee Rock taken yesterday. The earth is healing. We are the virus. Looks suspiciously like Pride Rock. This is my favorite one right here. The cows are returning to the sea. <laughs> Nature is healing. We are the virus. And then I kind of like this one too. Due to the decrease in air pollution, we can now see the details of the sun that were hidden before, and it looks strikingly like a child's face. The earth is healing. We are the virus. Now, I, I, I understand that it's a joke. I understand that it's a meme. I, I do want to ask us, though, do we corporately or individually think that we're the problem? Because I do think that that is a problem when a person or when someone believes that mankind is the problem. I, I have sat with people contemplating uh, harm to themselves as they have said something like this. Everybody would be better off if I wasn't here. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I'm the virus. And, and then there are other people who think that just, yes, humanity is the problem. Just look around you. The earth would be better off if there were no humans. I'm, I'm concerned about that mindset a little bit. And then there are others who would say, yeah, well, those people are the problem. They are the vi We are obviously are not the virus. They are the virus. Wouldn't, wouldn't, and even heard uh, some younger youth pastors, not our friend Zach. Zach hasn't said this, but I have heard some younger youth pastors say something like this. Man, youth ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> are the people the virus? Is a person the virus? We're actually in a book study. I've got a group of, of men who can meet with me on, on Fridays at 11, and we've got space for others if you'd like to. And right now we're reading a book by Henry Nouwen called Life of the Beloved. And I want to read you a simple quote out of the beginning of that book. He says, Not seldom, self-rejection is simply seen as the neurotic expression of an insecure person. But neurosis is often the psychic manifestation of a much deeper human darkness. 
the darkness of not feeling truly welcome in human existence. He goes on to say, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. Is a person, are the people, the virus, or are they the point? I would submit to you that if at some level you think you are or that we are somehow the virus, you are missing the point of who God is. You are missing the point of who this Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and to accomplish, and you miss the point of what makes us, the people of God, the body of Christ, us. And it is also to miss out on what makes life abundant and boundless, or as John would say in this gospel, eternal. We, life, creation, humanity, we are the point. We're not the virus. We're the point, the point of what God desires. And and to be fair, God has gone way out of God's way to make the point. In, In fact, Jesus will say it something like this. Jesus had this one job. Jesus had one job. To make sure that we know how desperately God loves us, each of us, and all of us, that one job. And so, having come to the conclusion of his God project, the Christ event, which, by the way, is always going to be understood in the book of John as the cross, then the resurrection, and the ascension, having come close to the conclusion of his time walking around on earth, Jesus prays a prayer that we must listen in on today. I think it can help those of us who wonder whether or not we might be part of the virus, those of us who are missing out on this core inner truth that we are, in fact, the beloved. Let's listen. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life, and we're going to come back to that phrase, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, this term glorify is very important, and there are lots of different ways that we could explain it, to make known, to make evident, but I think the best way to sort of explicate this word, to unfold it, would be to say something like this. To glorify something is to reveal its truth and its importance, to reveal the truth and the importance of God, the Son reveals the truth and the importance, the essential nature of God. And now, Jesus says, there is something to be revealed in you, amongst you. Now, you've heard this terminology of eternal life. And and yes, in some of the other books of the Bible, it does seem to speak of an innumerable number of days in heaven. But here in the book of John, it means something else. This is eternal life. Jesus says this as plainly as he can. This is eternal life. That they, people like us, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. That people may know you, the only true God. Now, again, we have to understand what he means when he uses the terminology of eternal life. There is a boundlessness to eternal life. There is an abundance to eternal life. This is the life that God in Christ dreams for all of us to live. People who suspect that they might be part of the problem and the virus, people who suspect that other people are parts of the problem, perhaps the virus, are not yet clearly in touch with 
the essence of this core truth of who God is and what eternal life can be. I have a, a professor of mine. He's a, it's a, I, I'm, I can't call him an old professor because I'm still kind of afraid of him. His name is Roger Hahn. He is the dean at the Nazarene Theological Seminary, and he has written some very important stuff about this concept of eternal life. He says this, it's very important that we understand how Jesus and John understood eternal life. The matter of heaven and the matter of never-endingness are not mentioned here at all. Eternal life consists of knowing God and knowing Jesus. And knowing in Semitic thought is not data or facts about something, but experience of something or relationship with someone. Eternal life consists of experiencing God and Christ It is a matter of personal relationship, and I would go farther and say eternal life happens, as John understands this, when we are finally swept away by the love of God that we see most clearly demonstrated in Christ. And when I say swept away, I mean the kind of being swept away that changes everything. It changes how you live your day-to-day, hour-to-hour existence. It is the best kind of being in love. It is the best kind of being swept away and having everything changed. Everything is reoriented because of this love. All of the definitions change to all the most important words because of love. That's what this eternal life is really speaking to now. Abundant life, when you cannot help but live. Convinced Convinced, convinced of this love, this non-coercive, scorekeeping love that we see, again, most clearly demonstrated in Christ. When you are swept away by this love, you are inching closer to what God and Christ and the Gospel of John wants to call eternal life. In other words, there is no eternal life in the Gospel of John without being swept away by the love of God we see in Christ. And when one is swept away by the love of God that we see in Jesus Christ, then we are inching closer to eternal, boundless, abundant life. Verse 5, so now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, look, look, I have glorified you on earth, dear God. I've glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And by this he means the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. But can we talk again about the cross? The exploding cross behind me. It's it's one of my favorite images of the Easter season. It is gloriously empty, this cross is. It is exploding in color, exploding in celebration. It is exploding in recognition of the victory of love. I want to say this to us again. Make sure your neighbor is awake. The cross is not an indication of how angry God gets when there is sin in the room. The cross is an indication of how far love will go to make love's point. The cross is meant to convince us, not that God cannot tolerate sin, It's meant to convince us that God can tolerate and accept and love sinners. Sinners. Even when those sinners do God damage. This love is not exhausted. In fact, this love exhausts sin and evil. And so, Jesus finishes his project in the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension. And here's the thing. Jesus is doing all of this to tell us what God is like. 
John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made God known. And so God is made known in the love of Christ. Let's talk again about how we understand this God. How does your imagination describe or define God? I will tell you this, in the Gospel of John, it's very important that that description that functions in your head or that definition that functions in your imagination, it's very important that it starts with love. It starts with love. In fact, it has to be shot through with love. In fact, it needs to start with love and end with love and is then shot through with love. In fact, if your understanding of God is not first and foremost love, you do not understand God. At least that's what Jesus seems to be saying. And this is what I mean when convinced, when convicted, when captured by this love. You can be swept away, swept away into something that the Gospel of John would call eternal life. But Jesus is about to go. The ascension is about to take place. And so Jesus prays, not just for the people in the room, but I want to read this portion of the scripture to you, and I want you to hear it as if Jesus is praying for each of us and all of us as a community of worship. Jesus says, I have made your name known, your essence, your essence, your nature known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, God, and they have kept your word. And now that they know everything that you have given me is from you, for the words that you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you have sent me. Verse 9, I'm asking God on their behalf. And he says something incredible here. He says, I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me because they are yours. Now, that, that sounds harsh, but you need to know how this concept or this word, this term, world, functions in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the world seems to indicate that portion of life that is angled against this message of grace, this message of non-scorekeeping love. Perhaps, perhaps the world has cast its lot with power or fame or wealth or something like that. It's angled against the love that we see demonstrated in Christ. That's what he means when he says the world. Jesus is here praying for those of us, and I mean myself, but I mean all of you too, who would be sent out into that world angled against grace as messengers, embodied with skin on messengers, of this particular kind of love and grace. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. Verse 11, and now I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. The prayer of Christ here is that there would be the same kind of unity amongst us as the body that Jesus enjoys with the Father. And that is an incredible thing. The prayer of Christ for us here is that we would enjoy the same kind of love that would function and organize our entire life together that the Father and Son enjoy. One of the things that I miss, one of the things that I miss here is a, is a good baby dedication. Now, you all know this. I, 
I love a good baby dedication. In fact, one of the pictures that you're going to see next week is this one. This is one of our babies born recently into our fellowship. And I have already laid claim on the opportunity to carry this kid around and dedicate this baby back to God. But can we talk a little bit about what happens in a baby dedication? Now, some of, <laughs> I've been doing this here long enough that some of the people that I have dedicated as infants are probably close to being able to carry me around at the front of the, of the platform now. That, that, would be, that would be fun. But a baby dedication is a, a moment when we try to embody and rehearse all over again that we function as a community of non-scorekeeping, non-coercive, always hospitable love. A baby dedication, an infant baptism does the same thing. We claim a spot in the community of faith, in the community that is organized by the love of God. We claim a spot for this baby. Though the baby can't yet choose it for himself or herself, we claim a spot so that from the jump, from the very beginning, this child can be raised in a community of love, non-scorekeeping, non-coercive love, in a community of grace that functions perhaps very differently here than the outside world functions. But we want this young person to understand who God is by looking around to see who the body of Christ really is. And so I miss a good baby dedication for a lot of the same reasons that I miss having communion. These points, these points that have to do with the love of God, that starts with the heart of God, is communicated then through God's Son, and then through God's Son, there is this formation of a community known as the body of Christ that also functions according to that same kind of love. These points are made every time we baptize an infant or dedicate a baby. We are welcoming this child into the song and dance of love that starts with the heart, the nature, the intention of God demonstrated most clearly by the face of God. Jesus helped along by the Spirit of Christ and embodied by the body, us, and so a baby is dedicated back to God, back into the care of the people of God who are now tasked to make the love of God known to this child by loving her, by loving him, and by loving one another. Our community of faith is meant to show, to demonstrate, to embody God and love of God to this and every child and to this and every family. At the moment of dedication, even more so at the moment of infant baptism, we are saying, you are made in the image of God. You are utterly acceptable and deeply loved by God, and we will communicate that love and acceptance by loving and accepting you and by loving and accepting one another. Hopefully, when I carry this baby around the front of the sanctuary, and I always go over here to the East Siders first, make good eye contact with the East Siders, move this way, come in front, of the youth department, get all the way over here to the West Siders, but hopefully you recognize that I'm doing so, holding that baby tightly enough not to drop it. <laughs> Representative of the embrace of God. I get to, in that moment, represent the embrace of God and the embrace of the church for this life and this family. Then I bring the baby back to center and I ask a few questions. I ask a few questions of the family. Will you be caught praying for this child? Will you be caught reading scripture? Will you be caught in moments of worship? Will you be caught serving? 
I even say, will you be caught disagreeing, but disagreeing Christianly and moving toward reconciliation? And here's why. Because that's what a community of godly love does. And then I turn around and I ask the family of faith who is now going to take responsibility for the upbringing of this child and all the other children. I say the same kinds of things to you. Hey, community of faith that is supposed to be organized according to the non-coercive, non-scorekeeping love of God. Will you allow yourselves, organized by that love as you are, will you allow yourselves to be caught praying because that's what community of love does. We get caught praying. Will you be caught in worship? Will you be caught serving Will you be caught disagreeing, but disagreeing Christianly? And I'm happy to report you do that very well. In other words, you do well putting skin and flesh on what this new reality can be, this new reality accomplished by the death and the resurrection of Christ. In other words, we've been using the terminology of resurrection grace. Let me say it like this. Resurrection grace is always embodied. Resurrection grace always has skin on it. Resurrection grace is possible because of the victory on the cross and in the resurrection. Resurrection grace means that we are organized according to love, not according to anything else. Resurrection grace means that Christ had one job and he succeeded to reveal to us who God really is, what God really wants. Have you ever walked up and heard somebody praying for you? I have. I have caught people praying for me before. I think John 17 is kept in the gospel in an attempt to try to capture a moment quite like that. It's almost as if we walk up and we hear Christ praying for us, that we would know and continue to know the love that organizes and animates us so that we can continue to be the tangible expression of God's nature, God's heart, God's passion, God's mission here among us. It's time to pray. But I hope that we pray In the same ways that we sing, I hope we recognize that we are praying not somehow to change God's posture toward us. I hope we are praying in grateful response for what we understand God to be because God is demonstrated, demonstrated in the cross. But I think there's also room here for confession. Like we said last week, this is not a cheap grace. This is a responsible grace that requires some sort of response from us And sometimes our responses are lacking. It is God's hope that we would respond to love with love. And when we don't, we confess it. We confess it. We seek forgiveness. And the love that doesn't change always finds us there at that moment of confession. I want to encourage each of us and all of us to pray that prayer of confession if for some reason we have fallen short of the response of love having first received this love from God in Christ. So I'll start with a prayer of confession, and I'll let it fall silent again because some of you may want to pray that prayer on your own, and then I'll finish with a couple of words before handing it over to Jason. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us 
Forgive us for all the times that we have underappreciated your heart for us. Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we still don't recognize the enormity of Jesus and the Christ event. We still haven't allowed for the cross and the resurrection to completely reorganize who we are and how we go about life. We still, at times, don't fully implement the victory of love. We confess, God, that sometimes we let those other voices, the voices from the world, as the Gospel of John would put it, we sometimes find ourselves intimidated into looking to those voices for help or for leadership, for hope. We confess, God, that sometimes we don't listen hard enough or well enough, we don't listen long enough for your voice of victorious and sacrificial love. And now, church, I would invite you, as I pray a personal prayer of confession, I would invite you, each of you, to pray your own prayer of confession now if you have fallen short of perfect love. hear these words. May the Almighty God have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life.